David Dahi Douglas was rather pleased with himself as he stood at the doorway of his Shoestown store in the heart of Dublin 8, enjoying the sunshine and tucking into a leftover chicken curry, which his pal John Shaw had just given him. Shaw ran the creche next door to David's discount shop on Bridgefoot Street and the pair often chatted outside. That bright and sunny July day in 2016, Dahi, known for his love of grub, remarked that the smell of curry coming from the crash was fantastic and that he was starving. Douglas had a checkered past and had a conviction for cocaine smuggling as well as armed robbery. He wasn't long out of prison and he was also lucky to be alive. Some nine months previous, he'd been just 100 yards from his home in Cabra in North Dublin when he was shot at least three times in the chest before he collapsed to the ground. In the Matter Hospital, he'd made a miraculous and speedy recovery. Douglas had been accused of being one of two gunmen who had aborted an attempted shooting on members of the Kinnahan cartel at the Red Cow Hotel in November of 2015 in retaliation for the murder of Gary Hutch. His pal, Darren Kearns, was shot dead a month later, but Douglas was happy that he'd now accounted for his movements and convinced the mob it was just a misunderstanding. He had just finished his chat with Shaw and had gone back inside the store when the sickening sound of gunfire rang out over Bridgefoot Street. Shaw heard a bang and stepped outside, seeing a man dressed from head to toe in black and wearing a balaclava run past in the direction of Oliver Bond Street. I went to the door of Shoestown and I saw David lying on the floor. I told my co-worker to lock the door of the creche and move the kids to the back of the building. He was gurgling the curry I had just given him out of his mouth. Then I saw the wound to his face. Shaw would later tell the special criminal court. I opened his shirt a bit. I could see holes in his chest. I rang 999. His daughter came out then from the back of the shop and she just lost it. Minutes before the shooting, a CCTV camera would capture an image of Freddie Thompson pulling up beside a family stall nearby and breaking up a mobile phone. Douglas's murder was the ninth in the Kinnahan Hutch feud, but officers investigating it saw a glimmer of hope. As they painstakingly pieced together footage from all over the city, they slowly created a picture of Freddie Thompson circling in a convoy of what they believed were the murder cars. Over countless hours, they saw the footprints of a hunter stalking its prey. But Thompson had always had uncanny good luck on his side. Could this time be any different? In this episode of Crime World, we're doing something different. In fact, over the next two episodes, I'm going to do the talking. And I'm going to tell you the dramatic and violent story of one of Ireland's most notorious criminals, Fat Freddie Thompson. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. For those who knew him, it was obvious from a young age that Freddie Thompson was intent on making his mark on this world and was never going to be pretty. Born on December 16th, 1980, into a working-class family of street traders in Maryland in Dublin's south inner city, 
Freddie was a child who learned young how to use his fists to get what he wanted. In a neat and tidy corporation home on Loretto Road in Maryland, he grew up with his brother Richie and sisters Melanie and Lisa Jane. His mother, Christine, struggled to bring up her brood alone after their father left the house when Freddie was only young, leaving the brothers to become the men around the house. Christine Rowe came from a tough inner-city family. Her sister, Sadie, had married the notorious James Jaws Byrne, and together they had three daughters, Melanie, Maria and Joanne, along with three sons, James, Liam and David. The sisters spent a lot of their time together, smoking and drinking cups of tea while the children played. When he was still a child, Freddie gained a reputation as a bully who would push and shove others out of his way to get what he wanted. He was a nifty street fighter and never afraid to use his fists to settle an argument. Those who knew her knew that Christine would always give her violent son the backing he needed to make sure that he was celebrated and not chastised for his behaviour. Freddie was streetwise and sold newspapers on the corner of Clanbrassel Street as a child. But he also learned to steal and pilfer in order to bring home the bacon for his mother. As he grew up, he became more and more involved in petty crime and antisocial behaviour, and his fearless nature and aggression made him stand out early to Gardee policing the notorious South Inner City beat. Many would have put money on the fact that Thompson was going to be a big player down the road. While Christine was a true Dublinate street trader, content with her world which revolved around the family home and the stalls of Mead Street and Grafton Street, Her sister Sadie had higher ambitions for herself than selling her wares on street corners. And when she married the forger and fraudster Jaws Byrne, she vowed that they would elevate themselves from the grinding poverty which had coloured their own childhoods in Dublin. Sadie loved a fur coat and gold jewellery that would set her above her contemporaries in the flats. And she knew that she was never going to have it all from the honest profits of a flower stall. If she wanted to get rich, she'd have to rely on Jaws and his plotting and scheming to make a quick book. By the time the Byrne family moved to Raleigh Square in Crumlin, Sadie and her brood were on the way up. The house was bought without a mortgage and it sat in a prime location in the area which is one of the first suburbs of Dublin. The move was a step up the ladder for the Burns, but for the younger generation, a class divide emerged for the first time between Freddie and Richie and their cousins, David, Liam and James. The divide would only serve to make the Thompsons more determined than ever to keep up and do whatever it would take to make sure they had the same opportunities as their relatives. The Thompsons were at a disadvantage for a number of reasons. Their father, a Jarvie who kept horses around the Guinness factory, moved in and out of their lives with regular recurrence. But he couldn't be relied upon to be really there for the boys as they grew up on the tough streets, where criminal parentage helped measure the fit from the weak. By his early teens, Thompson was excelling at two things, coming to the attention of Gardee and his ability to handle himself in the ring. At his local boxing club, Thompson was a quick 
and powerful fighter who stood out as a fearless opponent, never afraid to hurt or injure anyone he was pitted against. Through his chosen sport, he was also learning skills that would stay with him throughout his life as he fought his way up the ranks of criminality. Freddie Thompson had stopped growing by the time he was around 13, and at 5 foot 8 inches, he was hardly an impressive height. However, he made up for his lack of stature with his ability to give savage beatings for little or no reason, and in particular for any perceived slight. From early on, he sent out a clear message that he wasn't to be messed with, and what he said would go. He showed a coldness that was reflected in his steely eyes, which rarely changed expression. Some people noted that even when Freddie smiled, his eyes did not. With his cousins living in Crumlin and attending school there, a new circle of friends were opened up to him outside his Dublin 8 area. The Burns cemented friendships with some of the toughest families in Crumlin. Another cousin, Liam Rowe, also lived nearby and they all began to hang out in a large group of youths who were starting to move from petty to organised crime at a very quick pace. Crumlin itself was a hotbed of crime and in the early 1990s to an impressionable and ambitious teenager like Freddie, it was an exciting place of endless opportunities. Around the young guns were countless veterans who'd earned a good living from crime and many of whom had become rich and famous on their own reputations and their ability to outsmart the police. Freddie was hooked on the whiff of sulphur that hung in the air and he idolised the likes of Martin the General Cahill, Martin the Viper Foley and Larry Dunn and his family who'd become the first drug lords on the Dublin scene. By the time Freddie and his pals were old enough to become players, there was only one game in town and that was to deal drugs and to take a part of the massive profits to be made. By 1994, when Cahill was murdered in nearby Ranala, 14-year-old Freddie was on the fringes of a large, young and rapidly forming drug gang who were about to make their own names in the books of gangland crime. Another notorious criminal from Ballyfermot, John Gilligan, was happy to find the group of young teens to peddle his wares in the lucrative Crumlin and Drimna market. Gilligan was importing cannabis as a wholesaler and he needed reliable salesmen to flog his product and also to involve themselves in some of the more hands-on meetings and arrangements with his foreign suppliers. Two of Freddie's superiors in the gang, Brian Rattigan and Declan Gavin, were perfect in Gilligan's eyes and the duo were heavily involved in his supply chain while they were still only 15 and 16. In fact... On regular trips to Amsterdam and Spain, they'd even been trusted to meet some of the suppliers that Gilligan used. In 1996, when John Gilligan ordered the murder of Veronica Guerin, his drug business was worth a conservative 20 million euro a year, and he was living it up on holidays in Sandy Lane with a huge country pile in Kildare, complete with his own private equestrian centre. But the murder of the journalist would cause the equivalent of a tsunami in the delicately balanced underworld. A massive political reaction to the daylight killing on the Nace Road, coupled with a major Garda offensive on Gilligan and his gang, shut down the drug lord's operation almost overnight, leaving a huge vacuum to be filled by anyone in the right place at the right time. 
Rattigan and Gavin were hungry for success and for money and they instantly saw their opportunity and took it with both hands. The pair were still only 16 years old, but they had the skills and the context to fill the void left by Gilligan. Everyone moved up a notch. Thompson too. With his elevated status came new opportunities and soon Freddie Thompson would present as a catch to one Crumlin native he had long held a torch for. When he and Vicky Dempsey got together, he was immediately welcomed into her family, a notorious clan headed up by the anti-drug movement target, Noel Jack Dempsey. Dempsey would never earn a conviction relating to drugs. However, he'd been singled out by the movement for accusations of heroin dealing in the Crumlin area. And during the 1990s, Republicans had accused him of being in the same league as James the Whale Gantley, whose home they regularly marched upon. Vicky and Freddie hit it off and very quickly he was a regular visitor at the Dempsey home at Stanaway Road. And while dating Vicky, he was also very close with her brother Carl, who would later receive a hefty conviction for heroin dealing. Family patriarch Noel had spent his whole life engaged in crime and had racked up more than 100 convictions, largely for theft and road traffic offences. He was a well-known local character and was a feared figure in the Crumlin and Drimna area throughout the decades. Thompson was quickly turning hundreds of euro into thousands of euro and managing his own turf in some of the toughest estates and flat complexes in the area. His ruthless approach to business coupled with his boxing skills and connections made him a feared figure in an already tough underworld. By the time he was 19, he was moving from dealer to distributor and had transitioned from selling drugs in complexes like Fatima Mansions to being the supplier to younger teens working the landings. Thompson street dealers could earn up to €500 a day, clear profit, and even €1,500 depending on how hard they worked. The longer they sold, the more customers they could catch, and he got a cut from every sale. In order to make sure that nobody moved in on his territory, he ran a tight ship where no excuses were given or taken. Under Thompson's rules, nobody was on tick, and to hammer that home to the population of addicts and prostitutes queuing up for his wares, he often ordered a horrific beating or stabbing as a reminder of who was boss. Often, he would do the job himself and appeared to get a kick out of inflicting pain and injury on helpless addicts. Thompson was an addict too. To the profits that could be made from buying and selling drugs. To the lifestyle and to the overwhelming sense of power he felt every time he walked down a street and saw someone look at him in fear. His territory was expanding, and with it, his ambitions. Up the ladder from him, Freddie idolised Declan Gavin, but he never got on so well with Brian Rattigan, who saw himself as above the Dublin 8 blow-in. And that suited just fine, because although Gavin and Rattigan had been friends... They were two alpha males whose enormous egos often collided. For two years, the gang had been hanging together by a thread, while in reality dividing under the duo. Territories too were being carved up, although the pair continued to do business together, and from the outside, things looked okay. But assaults, criminal damage and tit-for-tat violence soon began to intensify into a feud. 
Thompson and his pal Paddy Doyle, a thug from the north inner city, were quick to spot something coming and offered their muscle to help out Gavin and to integrate themselves into his inner circle. In 1999, Thompson was believed to have been with Gavin when he shot up the home of one of Rattigan's lieutenants, and that marked a major upscale in tensions. By the year 2000, a fallout from which there was no return was about to kick off, and Freddie Thompson was set to find himself with opportunities beyond his wildest dreams. There was no doubting which side Freddie Thompson was on when it all kicked off. He was sticking firmly to Declan Gavin. Thompson had never got on with Brian Rattigan anyway, and no matter what was said, he couldn't believe that Gavin was a rat. One thing was for sure, the seizure of 1.7 million euro of cocaine and ecstasy in the Holiday Inn Hotel on Dublin's Pier Street was going to have repercussions which would last for over a decade and which would turn childhood friends into bitter and mortal enemies. It was March 2000 and Gavin, Graham the Wig Whelan and Philip Griffiths had worked through the night to break up the large block of cocaine into individual one gram deals, which they'd sell for €80 a bag. Breaking, grinding, mixing and weighing the coke was about the hardest work Gavin and his pals would have to do for their share of the €750,000 profits on the consignment, which was to be divided between about 10 senior drug dealers, including Brian Rattigan. The money was simply mind-blowing for the group of teenagers and young men who shared the spoils. They'd everything they could possibly dream of and a whole lot more besides. Wealth, fast cars, women, drugs, but most of all, they had respect. In their minds, they worked hard so they could afford to party hard too. A typical blowout would start with a few phone calls and a trip into the city centre and the pubs of Temple Bar, where they'd begin drinking pints and wind up booking penthouse hotel suites for all-night parties with champagne, hookers and coke. An angry girlfriend could be easily placated by a €10,000 holiday to a five-star resort or a few thousand for a new handbag or designer heels. Some of the boys still lived at home, but most had begun renting a handful of luxury apartments throughout the city so they could stay on the move and avoid any unwanted attention from police or their enemies. They often lived out of hotels for protracted periods, settling enormous bills on checkout with cash. The transient and luxury lifestyle fitted the image cultivated so carefully from gangster movies like The Godfather, Scarface and Pulp Fiction. And it also served to spend some money. With thousands coming in every week, it seemed reality had slipped so far away it was impossible to touch. One thing shared by most of those who join gangland is an insatiable greed for money. There's simply never enough For Brian Rattigan and Declan Gavin, it was that greed that was the final little bit of glue that had held their one-time friendship together. While they absolutely hated one another, they both still knew that they could make more money if they pooled their resources to buy supplies and up until the Holiday Inn bust, that trumped all else. But when Gardy burst into the two adjoining hotel rooms 24 hours into the preparation of the cocaine consignment, everything changed. Whelan and Griffiths were literally caught red-handed with the drugs, but Gavin was having a lie down and wasn't physically touching any of the gear when the raid went off, 
meaning he had to be released after questioning. While many may see that as a stroke of luck, in the paranoid drug underworld, there are no coincidences and good fortune only exists for those who make their own. Rattigan immediately pointed the finger at his business partner, accusing him of being a Garda informant. Gavin levelled the same accusations at Rattigan. Those watching the two big lines circle one another saw that this was the final straw in a long brewing war and the underlings knew it was time to call sides. In the days and weeks that followed, the Crumlin and Drimna gang drew battle lines and clearly divided forevermore. Firmly by Gavin's side was Freddie Thompson, his friend Paddy Doyle and money man Darren Gagan. They would have been an unlikely trio in an ordinary friendship, but everyone has their role in a drugs gang and when it came to the business of drugs and murder, Thompson, Doyle and Gagan fitted together like a glove. Doyle was not the brightest, but what he lacked in smarts he made up for in muscle and in coldness. He was, what many Guardi who encountered him would describe, as a natural-born killer. Gagan, on the other hand, was very bright and was able to manage the money-laundering end of Gavin's business with efficiency and skill. Thompson was violent, ruthless and knew the streets. But most of all, he fancied himself in a management role when it came to the business of drug dealing. He was hugely ambitious and while he had the ability to party hard with Doyle, he could also talk business with Gagan and discuss how to expand Gavin's empire. After the Holiday Inn, Rattigan and Gavin were literally dead to one another. Each had a dangerous following of enforcers, pack dogs salivating for fight, and it was just a matter of time before everything kicked off. In August 2001, a heady mix of cocaine, alcohol and that underlying hatred would bring the tense situation to a whole new level. Then, the Rattigan clan gathered to celebrate the 18th birthday of Brian's younger brother, Joey. Brian Rattigan is a cold fish. He displays all the characteristics of someone with antisocial personality disorder, including callous, impulsive and aggressive tendencies. He has icy grey eyes that rarely show emotion, and his mouth is mostly set in a sneer. His violence and ability to order or inflict pain on fellow human beings knows no bounds. Amazingly, for all his coldness of spirit and lack of empathy, family was everything to him. Just like the Thompsons, for the Rattigans, family came first and Brian had a particular soft spot for his little brother Joey, to whom he was teaching the tricks of the drug trade. On the night of Joey's birthday, Brian pulled out all the stops and threw open the family home in Crumlin for an all-night bender of drink and drugs. While he was violent and impulsive without cocaine, with it he resembled a pressurised canister and most that knew him knew to steer clear lest they should cause him offence. On the same night, Declan Gavin had gone into town and had a big evening out in Temple Bar. Always successful with the ladies, he had taken enough coke to keep him up all night and by the time he took a taxi back to Crumlin, Abracababra was the only place open. Guests at the Rattigan party had made their way to the takeaway too to bring supplies back to the guests still partying hard on lines of cocaine and bottles of vodka. They spotted Gavin. They returned to the Rattigan home and reported that he was high and making moves on women in the takeaway. Full of cocaine and brimming with anger and ego, Brian Rattigan decided this was his chance to prove which of the two of them was boss once and for all. He took another few lines, then ordered his minnows into a car. 
Rattigan was red-eyed and sniffing frantically when he got out of the screeching Nissan Micra that had transported him from Cooley Road to Abracababra. He lifted his balaclava and showed Gavin the large knife he brought with him. Do you remember me? he said, before he launched himself at Gavin with the knife. Injured, Gavin retreated into the chipper, where he collapsed and died as Rattigan made his getaway. It was the first of 16 murders in what was now a full-blown feud. In the immediate aftermath of Gavin's murder, there was complete consternation. As the head of one side of the divided gangs, he needed to be replaced and quick. And in a matter of hours, Freddie Thompson stepped forward and took the reins. His priority? Murder. Freddie and his pals, including Gagan and Doyle, were obsessed with Rattigan and getting revenge on their rival was their top concern. This wasn't just out of a heartfelt desire to avenge the death of their friend, but their next move was also going to be viewed as a sign of their strength and power. They promised to stop at nothing until Rattigan was six foot under. As the dust settled, Rattigan had no regrets, save for carrying out the murder so publicly. He knew he couldn't sit back and wait to be killed. This was urban warfare and he needed to strike again before he became a target himself. In his personal life, Thompson had cause for celebration as Vicky Dempsey had just given birth to their son. But fatherhood was not to soften him and instead the arrival would do nothing but strengthen his resolve to get rid of his enemies and increase his power base. By St. Patrick's Night in 2002, Rattigan was highly paranoid and wanted to strike again before he was hit himself. He heard that Freddie and a number of gang members were drinking in a city pub and driving past, he let off a few shots. He was stopped later that evening, but Gardy could find no weapon and had no means of holding him in custody, so he was allowed to go home. Later that night, Freddie made up his mind. He'd waited long enough and now it was time to do the job right, once and for all. Rattigan was asleep in a downstairs room with his girlfriend Natasha McEnroe when Thompson and his cohort burst into the house. McEnroe tried to wake Brian but he'd taken so many drugs and so much drink that she couldn't. In terror she slipped into an ensuite bathroom and it would later be described how Thompson and his fellow gunman, believed to be Doyle, fired at Rattigan in his bed as McEnroe peeked through a gap in the door. Satisfied Rattigan was dead with five bullets inside him, the pair went to make their escape just as McEnroe started to shout at them. One lifted his balaclava to reveal his face, but Freddie Thompson knew that she'd never testify against him in court. Amazingly, Rattigan survived, but he had to wear a colostomy bag in the aftermath. During seven rounds of interviews following his arrest for the shooting, Thompson repeated to Gardy, Nothing to say at this time. With Rattigan out of the way, Thompson and his crew quickly gained an upper hand in the feud and he saw anyone as fair game. He first ordered the murder of a young man accused of making a call to the Rattigan home on the night of Gavin's murder. He survived the shooting but refused to make a complaint. In July 2002, Thompson was salivating at the thought of revenge. Rattigan may have survived, but he was intent on destroying him and his thoughts turned to his little brother Joey. The new style of warfare marked a change in gangland that would continue throughout the Crumlin-Drimna feud and follow on to the Hutch and Kinahan feud. It would even be a sentiment echoed years later by cartel lieutenant James Mulvey when he was recorded telling a girlfriend, 
They go after the ones you love. They kill the ones you love. Joey was at home with his girlfriend when he got a call from Paul Warren, inviting him to go down to a pub in Dublin 8 for a pint. In another scenario that would flow through both feuds was the ease with which gang members were convinced to switch sides. What Joey didn't know that night was that Warren asked him out for a pint, but he had firmly moved his position and was now a Thompson loyalist. At 2am, after a night of drinking with the enemy, Joey Rattigan was shot in the head at the bottom of Cooley Road. He died instantly, and many say so too did the last strand of humanity in his brother. Rattigan was apoplectic. This was an eye for an eye, a brother for a brother. The weapon was a .38 pistol, Thompson's gun of choice. Warren was quickly identified by Gardee, who believed that Thompson's chief enforcer, Paddy Doyle, had fired the gun. As a new Thompson loyalist, Warren followed his leader under questioning, remarking, no comment at this time to everything he was asked. At 23 years of age, Rattigan was recovering well from his injuries, but the grief of losing his little brother was overwhelming. He turned to cocaine and drink for help. And a month after his brother was killed, he made a big mistake and fell asleep holding €27,000 worth of heroin, only to be caught red-handed by Gardee. Jailed for six years for the offence, he was also charged with the Declan Gavin murder. He'd be off the streets for a long time. For a brief period, the gunfire was silenced until January 2004, when shots were fired through the window of a woman's house linked to Rattigan. Paddy Doyle was arrested but released without charge and it seemed the gloves were off again. In retaliation, Darren Gagan was warned his life was in danger. A month later, Brian Rattigan exacted revenge on the man who set up his brother and ordered the killing of Paul Warren from behind bars. He got the recently released hitman Gary Bryan to take on the job and the execution was over within seconds. Tensions rose and this time it was Thompson's turn to be apoplectic. Within days, an innocent man was beaten by mistake and Gardy told Richie Rattigan, Brian's older brother, that there was a bounty on his head. By December 2004, Freddie's mother's house on Loretta Road was shot up. Christine Thompson was asleep at the time in the house but was uninjured. Freddie was in jail but was released a few days later. Before Christmas, he attempted to kidnap Rattigan's man, Joey Redmond, but failed. He'd celebrate the festive season, but as soon as it was over, he vowed, it was down to business. By early 2005, Freddie Thompson was a walking murder machine, and all over the city, people were terrified of his capabilities. His gang attempted to murder another Rattigan loyalist but failed and while he was intent on spilling blood as part of the feud, he also had a few personal issues to sort out. Joey O'Brien was a target because he'd been seen socialising with Vicky Dempsey while Freddie was in prison. Those who have policed Thompson for years say that the intense relationship he has had with Vicky since he was just a teenager often affects his mood and his bloodlust. He's always been ferociously jealous of her friendships with any other man and particularly so when he serves stints behind bars. And while he's emotionally cold and without remorse or empathy, just like Rattigan, he's always been fiercely loyal to his family and to his partner. But his hot-headed approach to his relationship means that many have fallen foul to his jealous rages, whether called for or not. 
Tensions were so high in the city that Gardaí were regularly stopping gang members travelling in convoys and wearing bulletproof vests. Thompson and his close inner circle were moving from place to place, rarely staying in the same location for two nights in a row. Rattigan's Lieutenant John Roach was next. In March 2005, he was killed in retaliation for Paul Warren. Thompson is said to have watched the murder and cheered and celebrated after his death. With another killing on the street, gangland crime moved to the top of the political agenda and the then-Justice Chief Michael McDole announced Operation Anvil to curb Dublin's rising gun crime and an extra 15,000 hours of overtime per week was allocated to fight the gangs. A month after Roach was killed, drug dealer Terry Dunleavy was shot in Ballybock and it quickly emerged that he was another Thompson victim as he'd owed the gang a small debt. Paddy Doyle had gone to see him for the money. By the summer, a relative of Brian Rattigan, who was in a wheelchair, had his home shot up and again the jail drug boss lost it, demanding Thompson and his men be wiped out. An attack on two Thompson loyalists followed, leaving one paralysed. Days later, guardies searched a house in Port Arlington in County Leash and uncovered a chilling list written by a man they believed was Alan Wilson later jailed for his role in a number of conspiracy-to-murder plots. Wilson had been working for Freddy as a freelance hitman and punting for business at the same time. The list included criminal associates as well as relatives of Brian Rattigan. Beside his sister Sharon, partner Natasha McEnroe and the relative in a wheelchair, whose house had already been shot up, was scribbled, Easy Got. On the same day, Joey O'Brien reportedly survived again, having run like hell from Freddy's men. It seemed that Thompson's bloodlust was insatiable, but nobody could have imagined just how bad things were going to get. In November, Thompson's money man Darren Gagan and his assistant Gavin Byrne drove to Furhouse for a pre-arranged meeting with someone. Gagan had set up an intricate network of investments and property purchases to wash the massive amounts of money the gang were making. Neither Gagan nor Gavin were wearing bulletproof vests when they went for their meeting and clearly knew the person who got into the back of the car as there were no reports of a struggle or any panic. Initially, Gardy, who were called to the scene of the barbaric double shooting, believed the murders had to be the handiwork of Rattigan, but very quickly that theory wasn't adding up. There was no way the lads would have arranged to meet anyone from his outfit, nor would they have been comfortable letting them into the car. Soon, the unthinkable emerged from investigations, and it was suspected that Paddy Doyle had killed both on the orders of Thompson. It's never been properly established why Thompson decided his friends had to be killed in the middle of the feud, whether either had disrespected him or had got too big for their boots, or if they were stupid enough to cream off some of his money. Perhaps they were just collateral, and Freddie believed he could take on the roles himself and make even more money than ever before. Whatever the reason, and the truth probably lies in the middle, the double murders in a middle-class estate in Furhouse put Freddie Thompson and Brian Rattigan back into the heart of politics for a second time. Minister McDowell assured the public that both sides were under heavy surveillance and that Operation Anvil was working, but many were doubtful. Gagan and Byrne were the 17th and 18th gangland murder victims in 2005 alone. Two days later, Noel Roach became the 19th 
and the eighth victim of the Crumlin and Drimna feud when he was shot in Clontarf after a Phil Collins concert. His brother John was dead less than eight months and his death meant that Rattigan had lost yet another of his soldiers. Thompson's enforcer Doyle was again suspected of the job and he quickly became Gangland's most wanted man, spending weeks travelling around in disguise. Just like his boss, he'd often dress as a woman and wear wigs to change his look, but a month after the three shootings, he left Ireland for good, travelling first to Birmingham and then on to Spain for a new life. In 2006, Wayne Zambra, one of the youngest and most trusted members of Rattigan's gang, was shot dead, and it seemed firstly that even with Doyle out of the country, Thompson could order a murder as easy as ringing for a pizza. However, jumping to conclusions has been the downfall of many a good detective and it soon emerged that it was Rattigan himself who'd taken Zambra out after accusing him of dipping into the funds. Despite being behind bars, a lax prison regime relating to mobile phones had meant that Rattigan could carry out business as usual. Drug addict Gary Bryan was understood to be the shooter. Fresh out of prison, he'd been hired by Rattigan. Thompson's side knew they had to take out Brian before he could take out any more of their men, so they grabbed the first opportunity when he was spotted in Crumlin visiting a relative. A week later, in October 2006, Freddie Thompson was arrested in Rotterdam with machine guns and seven kilos of cocaine. He was facing three years and Gardy were hopeful he would get the maximum sentence which would allow some sort of peace to send on the feud. But Thompson has often got luck on his side and the Dutch magistrate threw the case out, ordering authorities to compensate him for each day he'd spent in prison in Holland. Back home, Thompson made an alliance with the McCarthy Dundon gang in Limerick, dealing directly with clan leader Fat John McCarthy as a direct reaction to Brian Rattigan's friendship and business partnership with Christy Keane. He continued the trigger-happy justice too, Rattigan cohort Wayne McNally was shot but survived and then Thompson forced a terrified petty criminal to shoot his friend Ian Kenny who died two years later when his family eventually turned off the life support machine. Rattigan's side were seriously weakened by all the losses but just when Thompson thought he was in the winning seats he met his match and ended up running for cover. Declan Wacker Duffy had just been released from prison after serving his time for his role in the Ballymun bloodbath. Duffy wanted money, but Thompson told the INLA thug to fuck off. However, like his pal Paddy Doyle, Thompson knew the heat was on and it was time to pack up and head for the Costa. Freddie Thompson was well used to Spain, as he had regularly used it for downtime if he was under threat or had to lie low. He loved the sunshine, the lifestyle and the feeling of being with the real gangsters of Europe, where he hoped to make his final elevation in the drug world. It was Spain that was the headquarters of Dubliner Christy Kinahan Sr. And while the dapper Don was totally out of reach for the likes of Freddie, his sons Daniel and Christopher Jr. were not. The pair had been living on the Costa for years and although part of the elite in drug circles, they were a little bit more reachable for Kinnahan customers like Thompson and his cousins, the Burns. They mixed with other associates, including Jerry the Monk Hutch's family, particularly Gary Hutch. 
Doyle had got himself a luxury apartment in Cancelada, in a gated community close to the golf course, and Freddie moved in. Hutch was living in the nearby Vista Golf, and Thompson's cousins David and Liam Byrne were regular visitors, and the group often hung out with the Kinnahan brothers. Their days would start in a gym, where they worked out to keep the pumped-up bodies they now paraded on the beaches and at the poolside parties. This was followed by a working lunch where the day's business would be sorted out and regularly the evenings were spent in Peter Fatso Mitchell's pub and club called Paparazzi. There they mingled amongst the crowds of rich oligarchs, wealthy tourists and other young men like themselves who'd made their fortunes through the misery of others in the drug trade. They'd Rolex watches and fancy cars to prove their wealth and were often surrounded by beautiful women desperate for free champagne and coke. While Christy Kinnahan Sr. didn't approve of the rough young Dubliners that his sons chose to work with, his then business partner John Cunningham simply hated them. Cunningham had once been part of Martin the General Cahill's gang before he found fame by kidnapping the wealthy Jennifer Guinness. He'd spent years behind bars where he'd met and befriended Kinnahan Sr. and together they had carefully built their empire, first in the Netherlands and later in the south of Spain. Cunningham thought that the younger generation were nothing but trouble and often appealed to the dapper Don to distance himself from the young thugs. Top of his hate list was Thompson because of the publicity that followed him due to his status in Dublin and his role in the Crumlin and Drimna feud. But for his part, Thompson was just desperate to be accepted. He'd simply do anything to fit in and to try and build a bridge with the Kinnahan elder. Gardy believed that Thompson was so anxious to get a nod from Kinnahan Sr. he even managed to arrange to settle an old score for him with a man who'd long been his friend and mentor. Martin the Viper Foley had used his experience to help Thompson build his own feared reputation in drug business but when he organised to have him shot in January 2008 it was to impress the dapper Don who believed he'd been ripped off and disrespected by the veteran gangster. Foley survived what was the fourth attempt on his life. A month later, Thompson would go even further to prove his loyalty to the Kinnahans. Paddy Doyle had angered the top tier of the cartel because of his brash attitude fuelled by his cocaine use, which was seen as disrespectful. He'd a swagger that had become an annoyance and suspicions were growing that he and his old pal Fatso Mitchell were getting too successful. Thompson was Doyle's closest friend, but when a plan was put in place to kill him, he was asked to show where his true loyalties lay. In the parallel universe that is the underworld, a bullet in the head is the equivalent of getting sacked from a job or dumped from a relationship. Its finality is to silence and its cruelty is to spread fear. On February 4th, Doyle, Gary Hutch and Thompson were sitting in a BMW Jeep. They were headed for Marbella, where another Jeep pulled up alongside theirs and the shooting began. Hutch and Thompson got out and ran away as their friend was finished off in the car. Initially, the Spanish police received information that Doyle had fallen foul of a local Russian mafia or a Turkish crime syndicate. As time has gone by, it's now accepted that Thompson and likely Hutch had in fact set up their pal for murder in order to boost their own status within the growing Kinahan network. After the Doyle murder, Thompson returned to Dublin where Declan Duffy was waiting for him. It's understood that the return to Ireland was ordered by the Kinahan mob and the ever-willing Thompson had reluctantly agreed. 
In Dublin, he was rattled, not least by the presence of Duffy, who'd upped the contract on his head. But he was also paranoid that, like Doyle, maybe he'd fall foul of the Kinnahans himself. By March, Thompson had luck on his side again, when Gardy stopped a car containing two would-be hitmen on their way to shoot him. He was unaware of the plan until he was informed by Gardy, and once he was, he boarded a flight back to Spain. For the rest of the year, Thompson would travel to Spain and back to Ireland, where his presence in the city always served to heighten feud situations. In August, Peter Mitchell left the Costa for good after he survived an assassination attempt while he sat outside his paparazzi bar. Again, the Kinnahans are believed to have spun a story to police that he'd fallen foul with a foreign gang over a drug shipment. Despite his efforts to ingratiate himself with Kinnahan Sr., it seemed Thompson was simply not liked and those who knew him said he was resigned to concentrating his efforts on Daniel and Christopher Jr., even offering to do menial tasks for the brothers in order to keep his enemies close. He remained very alert in Spain, but nowhere more so than in Dublin, where incidents of tit-for-tat murders had become commonplace again. At one point, Two masked men walked into a pub and asked for him by name. But like a cat with nine lives, Freddy managed to evade the hitmen again. Rattigan, despite being locked up, had continued to operate his own drug business with the help of an endless supply of mobile phones in the Irish prison service and had a new enforcer, Anthony Cannon, at his beck and call. Along with another associate, Gerard Eglinton, the pair were collecting drug money and doing Rattigan's bidding. In June 2008, Declan Duffy was arrested and placed in custody in Portlaoise Jail, solving one of Freddie's problems. Gardy hoped his incarceration would relieve tensions in Dublin, but it didn't. When in the city, Freddie tried to travel in disguise. He grew a beard and then shaved it off. He continued to wear wigs and a bulletproof vest, moving around 16 luxury apartments he'd rented. In 2009, Thompson clocked up his next victim, when Shea O'Byrne, the partner of Brian Rattigan's sister Sharon, was killed. During an altercation, she was shot through the leg and again Rattigan flew into an uncontrollable rage. By July, enforcer Anthony Cannon was shot twice in the head. He was the last remaining hard man that Rattigan had on the outside and had been suspected of being the man who once shot up Freddie's grandparents' house in the Coombe as part of the feud. By December 2009, as Thompson continued his purge of his old enemies, Rattigan was jailed for life for the murder of Declan Gavin. The mandatory sentence was a finality of sorts in the decade-long feud, and Thompson was happy he could now set his sights on the true prize, a place at the top table in Spain. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>